The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, following the news that Putin has offered Ukraine a temporary ceasefire, we discuss the possible motivations for such an offer and whether everything is all as it seems. And we hear of the challenges faced and ensuing resilience and adaptability shown by doctors and healthcare workers in Ukraine's hospitals in an interview with public health expert Oksana Pizik. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 6th of January, day 317. And to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley, Senior Foreign Correspondent Roland Oliphant, and Lecturer at UCL School of Pharmacy, Pharmacist and Global Health Advisor Oksana Pizik. I started by asking Roland to explain the ceasefire in further detail. Right, so as you said yesterday afternoon, the Kremlin suddenly put out a statement, it's about 3 o'clock our time, I think, 3.25, saying that Vladimir Putin had ordered the Russian armed forces to unilaterally cease fire in Ukraine for 36 hours from midday today until midnight tomorrow night, Saturday night, to mark Eastern Orthodox Christmas. Today is Christmas Eve, tomorrow is Christmas Day by the Julian calendar. Uh, which most Orthodox believers in in Russia and Ukraine still follow, um, it was it was put out by the Kremlin as a as a response to a request from Patriarch Kirill, who is the head of the Russian Orthodox Church and a close Kremlin ally. Um, it also happens to follow uh, conversations between both Mr. Putin and Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey, and also a conversation between Mr. Erdogan and Vladimir Zelensky. In Ukraine, so it seemed this announcement seemed to come off the back of a bit of telephone diplomacy by Mr. Erdogan, um, perhaps trying to, to 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 push the sides towards some kind of some kind of talks or some kind of compromise. The Ukrainians straight away said, "No, nothing doing. This is clearly a, a, a kind of an empty gesture, a, a propagandistic sly gambit. We're not going to give you 36 hours to regroup your forces. We're not going to stop hitting your logistics hubs. If you want to cease fire um, or you want to talk about the truce, it's quite simple. You get out of our territory, um, which is the, the basically the the understandable response from the side that seems to feel it has the, the initiative on the battlefield at that. It was also pretty roundly condemned by um, the usual suspects on Russian war telegram. You had um, several of the louder voices on, on, on telegram, people like Igor Gherkin, the military observer, uh, even Rebar, who are a little bit more muted generally in their criticism of the Kremlin, saying, like, what are you doing? Like, why, why, why would you give the Ukrainians 36 hours off? Um, it's crazy. That's nothing new. We've seen a lot of criticism from, from those tub-thumping pro-war voices on the Russian side, a lot of criticism of the brass since the beginning of the war. So fast forward to today, it is about three hours, I think, into the alleged ceasefire, uh, which is meant to begin at 12 o'clock. Well, we have 
um, reports from Russian and Ukrainian sources that the Russians have made gains near Solidar, which is one of the towns just north of Bakhmut, has been quite well contested. We've had a an air raid alert all across Ukraine, and we've got, I think it's AFP journalists in Bakhmut reporting ingoing and outgoing fire. So no ceasefire, essentially. Now, having been through a few of these ceasefires in East Ukraine and, you know, in the kind of eight-year low-level war that preceded this, it, it wouldn't surprise me if maybe somewhere along the line there are spots where things have quietened down, where perhaps there are spots where you know, maybe down somewhere along the line in that, that more static front in, in Zaporizhia, perhaps. Perhaps there are points where the Russians aren't aren't conducting offensive um, shelling and, and maybe the Ukrainians are taking a little bit of a break as well. I wouldn't rule it out. But on the whole, combat seems to be continuing as usual. Thank you, Roland. And what would you say the purpose of announcing this ceasefire was, seeing as neither side appear to have had any intention of sticking to it? Uh, it's a good question. I think there's a there's obviously a kind of there's a testing role here, right? I mean, it wasn't going to be a long ceasefire. It says he said it himself. It was kind of unilateral, and I suppose it, it, it tests Ukraine's reactions. It tests the Western reaction to see what what kind of traction does that give. The interpretation we got from from you know the Ukrainian government yesterday, Kylo Podolyak was saying, um, look, there's two kind of objectives. They want to regroup. Um, they're desperate to buy a little bit more time because we keep hitting them. We keep hitting their logistics hubs. Um, we keep uh, we keep stopping them from building the, these reinforced defences. All of this stuff. Um, so we we absolutely cannot let up. We cannot give them those thirty six hours. There's that battlefield consideration. Um, his other interpretation was: Look, um, Putin wants to play the good guy here, um, and he's hoping that that's going to persuade the uh, you know the European governments in particular to say to Ukraine, well, look, well, you know, the Russians have ceased fire. Maybe you should cease fire too. Come on, come on, this is an opportunity. Let's get to the negotiating table. And that that ends up by, you know, de facto freezing the conflict for, for some time. And suddenly you've got a new line of contact. And it, there's there's previous here, right? So he's basically referencing, without mentioning it, the Minsk agreements, which froze the conflict in 2014, 2015, where you, where you ended up with a ceasefire um, and then you ended up with a de facto Russian-controlled uh, so-called breakaway states in those occupied parts of Ukraine, and it stayed that way for eight years. Um, the the Ukrainians are convinced the Russians are trying to do that again because they feel that they have the initiative. The Ukrainians feel they have the initiative, and that the Russians are, you know, feeling the pressure um, at the moment. And th- there's one other thing I think we should bear in mind: um, Tatyana Stanova, who's a, a very um, what's the word? Uh, erudite, canny, observant and observant observer of the Kremlin um, she pointed out that okay well first of all this plays into the way Vladimir Putin sees himself in this war which is that he is the good guy, he is on the side of light and look I am offering a ceasefire over Christmas, I know let's all play football in no man's land or whatever um, but also that look this comes less than a week after that horrific um, you know, disaster from the Russian point of view um, in Makievka where the Ukrainians struck that barracks full of dozens, possibly hundreds of uh, mobilized Russian troops, um, very, very high casualties. And that was an incident that it made waves in Russia. It was noticed. It was picked up. Um, it, it, it it got play over social media. Um, it's possible, you know, he was trying to p- preclude something like that happening over Christmas as well. I think I think there is... I don't think there is any sign 
of kind of Russian public morale. Um, you know, the public mood really shifting against this war yet, but incidents like that do have an impact. And the Kremlin is historically, ever since Vladimir Putin has been in power for 22 years, they're absolutely religious about kind of, you know, focus groups, public opinion, or what's the shifting mood. Um, I would be surprised if there weren't, you know, people on, on you know, Stary Ploshed in Moscow, where the president's administration is, you know, kind of pouring over this thinking, okay, what, what does Makiyevka mean? Um, is that going to undermine the morale? Things like that. I don't think we can we can separate the two. Um, those are my uh, my immediate thoughts. And just just to reiterate, the, the back of a cigarette packet kind of calculation when it comes to ceasefires is the person who wants a ceasefire is the person who's losing at that time. Um, and I think this does demonstrate that it's the at the moment it's despite this ongoing grinder in Bakhmut, despite. Um, this apparent stalemate on most of the line, it still seems to be the Ukrainians who feel like they have the initiative at the moment. Thank you for that, Roland. Some really interesting analysis there. Francis, I'm sure you'll have some thoughts you want to share on this ceasefire. So please take us away. Well, thank you, Claire, and good afternoon to our listeners around the world. Yes, I think I would echo everything that Roland's been talking about there in terms of us interpreting this through the lens of of cynicism um, with regard to Putin's real intentions. I mean, clearly, we've even been speaking on this podcast now for, for several months that we thought that if things looked like they were in a pretty dire situation from the Russian perspective, that Putin might offer some kind of ceasefire at, at one stage, even just a brief one in order to take stock and to appear like the good guy and indeed that is what he's seeking to do here i think actually that's probably the main thing because it's such a short period this isn't really about um, restructuring forces and, and 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 resupplying rather it's it's more this appearing to be to the international community an attempt by russia to de-escalate as opposed to escalate and if you look at the imagery that the Kremlin had put out in the last 24 hours, it's a sort of smiling Putin in a jumper trying to look a bit festive. And it's clearly a, a ploy for the optics here to try and win round perhaps those who are wavering in the international community and who aren't following the war as closely as us and our listeners who think, oh, they see the headline ceasefire and immediately think, oh, there's an opportunity here, as Roland was saying. So I think uh, it, it's very much important that we see this in the context of this war and what Putin's real attempt is, which is to appear to be um, in a moral position. I think there's something else that's also important to seeing this, which is that, of course, by the Ukrainians denying this ceasefire, it, it, Putin will be able to use that as a means of saying, well, look at how irreligious this uh, Zelensky administration is. Despite the fact, of course, that since this war and even before the war, there are many, many Ukrainians in Ukraine who prefer to celebrate Christmas uh, more along the Western tradition of doing it on, on the 25th of December. So, again, there's a sort of religious context to this, which he's saying, well, if you're not wishing to have a ceasefire on Christmas, then what kind of uh, Christian are you? Um, and and I think that that also plays into this in a way that hasn't really been picked up by many commentators, is that there's a means now that he can use religion as a weapon here, as he has been doing ever since this conflict began, and indeed before that, not only um, in in how 
they have the, the Russian Orthodox Church has depicted Ukrainians since the war, but also more generally now in terms of how it's being used to encourage Russians to fight this uh, this state that it sees as being um, in the throes of, of Western decadence and uh, and atheism as well. So I think that also plays into this. The other update in the military space that I think it's worth talking a little bit more about, and I know that you spoke about this yesterday a little bit, is, of course, this news of that America and Germany and also France are going to be sending further armoured vehicles to Ukraine in, I think it's really important to underline, a major policy shift from Western backers of Ukraine. We already knew, of course, that America was set to announce further um, support for Ukraine in the military space. and uh, But I think that it has caught commentators by su- the surprise um, this morning, uh, not only the policy shift from France in terms of them offering light battle tanks, but also from Germany as well. And I think it's it's perhaps a sign that there is an increasing recognition in Paris and Berlin that uh, the only option that the, really the West has now is to provide the weapons that Ukraine needs in order to not only battle back any attempted offensive on Kyiv, which is possible from the Russians, but also in order to launch further offensives in the coming weeks and months. So I think it is important to register this as quite a significant moment. I think also I was quite struck by the remarks by James Cleverly, the British Foreign Secretary this morning, who said that Britain is also open to sending Ukrainian tanks and evolving its support um, to Kyiv as they ready their next phase of self-defence. And I just think that that's also quite interesting, that in a sense, I just got a sense from the wording there, that Britain's been caught a little bit on the back foot of the, on this, and that you know up until now, of course, Britain has been at least uh, since the very early days of the conflict. And I know things have shifted a lot since then, but it was Britain that really was championing uh, much, much greater military support from within Europe. And I think there are some suggestions that perhaps Britain in recent months has, while certainly been been as robust as ever on the matter of Ukraine and requiring Ukrainians to support that there has been a slowdown in some of the, the high-tech weapons from the British perspective. I think there are possibly two reasons for that. On the one hand, I think that it's possible that, you know, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has a lot of other crises that he's trying to deal with, and he is, we understand, somebody who likes to deal with one at a time. And I think that it may just be that this is something that he just, which is a little bit uh, slower to, rea- to react in the new year, but no doubt they won't want to be seen as, as being you know, losing ground in terms of, of, of Britain being seen as, as a chief, or if not the chief champion of Ukraine in Europe. I think the the, the second reason as well why um, uh, Britain perhaps is, is has been slower to react is the fact that we've given so much up until this point that stocks are low, as simple as that, that it takes time to build this kind of high-tech weaponry. And as I say, there has been some speculation that we have not got the stockpiles to give the Ukrainians. And of course, of always, there's always got to be enough that if things were an event were something to erupt, that, you, you, that there would be enough for the British Army to use. It sounds like an obvious point, but I, I think it's important to emphasize that since this war began, the amount of weaponry that has been sent to Ukraine is incredibly significant. And, 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 Inevitably, there are some European capitals that are thinking, you know, we can't afford to give them too much because we actually haven't been prepared for land war in Europe for a generation or more. We just haven't got the stockpiles. The armies are not prepared. And so this, of course, is another consequence of the war is that a lot of armies now are going to be expanding inevitably and that there will be a lot more work being done to 
create the kind of supplies that are necessary for not only a long war, but if things were to escalate, that's just the sensible thing for any defence secretary, foreign secretary to be doing. So I think also it's just important to, to draw attention to that as well, that quite two, I think, very important developments in the last 24 hours in that, in that respect. And now I'm pleased to welcome our guest for this afternoon, Oksana Pazik. She is the Global Engagement Lead and Lecturer at the UCL School of Pharmacy, as well as Pharmacist and Global Health Advisor. She's also Ukrainian-Canadian. So, Oksana, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to the show. Could you just give us an intro to you and the work you do, please? Hi, thanks very much, Claire. Um, So, yeah, as... Uh, you've said uh, my background is, of course, in healthcare. So I am a, a registered um, pharmacist, and I work in the global health space. Um, and recently, I have teamed up with the Pharmacists Defense Association um, to really ensure that we can help send specialized medical products to Ukraine. Um, I have been at UCL and working with uh, UN agencies and NGOs for over well over a decade now. Um, and I also ha- was born in Canada, but have uh, Ukrainian roots, um, and uh, that has been a, a big part of why I've been so uh, such a big fan of this podcast as well, and been following it religiously. Lovely to hear it. Thank you for listening. So, can you tell us about what you see as the biggest problems currently facing the Ukrainian healthcare system? Of course, we see that there's been a huge amount of disruption, uh, and this means that there has been loss of staff, damage to infrastructure, a huge security concerns, but also mass displacement of the population. So um, nearly 7 million Ukrainians have moved from east to west away um, from the, the front lines, and this has put a lot of pressure on um, the healthcare facilities in this region, as well as in the neighboring countries, such as Poland, which has been the uh, country in Europe that has taken the most refugees. Uh, Long term, we're talking about lots of uh, problems with trauma and mental health, and and that's very difficult uh, to support. And uh, also, we see that emergency care, uh, the fact that now uh, energy grids are being targeted, that even life-saving surgeries, etc. There just isn't that reliability, um, even away from the front line, that these can be done safely uh, because of power outages. It takes some time for the generators to kick in. You know, we've, we've had stories about um, surgeons using you know, flashlights to try and complete uh, operations. And, and so there have been huge amount of challenges from getting the correct medicines over there, as well as, you know, other massive uh, problems like attacking hospitals. So right now, over uh, 750 hospitals, clinics, health centers, uh, even just medicine storage units have been targeted. And and, and there are rules to war. Um, And these civilian targets and hospitals, that's a war crime. It is in breach of the Geneva Convention. Do you have any specific stories or not exactly anecdotes, but, you know, situations you've heard of people getting in that might bring the reality of the situation home to our listeners. Certainly. So in addition to the fact that uh, people can't 
access some of their medicine. So uh, in many places, uh, they're just, you know, you don't have electricity. Without electricity, you can't have the, the, the basics running. But uh, in addition to sort of the frustration of, of people who are living in these you know, extremely harsh circumstances, when aid is sometimes delivered, we see that these aren't necessarily the products that are needed. And that in some instances, we see that they have been really like excess supplies that have just been dumped in Ukraine. Uh, so some, some two examples uh, that are pretty powerful is that when our chairman of the Pharmacist Defense Association was uh, in the military hospitals, um, he saw a huge number of containers uh, containing ventilators that the U.S. had sent over, uh, which were left over from the COVID crisis. And not only did they at this throughout the war, that has not been something that has been in short supply, uh, but the UK also sent uh, lorries full of paracetamol, which is a very weak painkiller and not much of use uh, if you're critically injured uh, from a, a bomb or, or, or other type of injury. But they were also two weeks uh, away from expiry. So in that aspect, we saw that then we had our colleagues from Pharmacists Without Borders having to from all different countries. I mean, just use these two examples, but they've come over to help and, and the, their pharmacist skills are, are actually used towards just destroying products that can't be used or have come through ways that we can't identify or verify the source. Uh, so that has been very challenging uh, for not only uh, there is that skepticism from healthcare workers there about you know understanding the needs, uh, but also that we do need to work more carefully and ask you know what what products, what specialized medicines are actually needed. And um, my work with the Pharmacist Defense Association, um, th they're working with the Ministry of Health with the. Um, military hospitals directly so that you can get specialized blood products, uh, IV infusions, a more sophisticated pain medication, and all of these things that uh, otherwise there has been a gap around and is difficult to, to, to supply. So I think that when we see just the, the devastation that is happening all over Ukraine, uh, Yes, the, the the heaviest fighting is in the east, but we see that there have been retaliatory strikes uh, in the major cities, and there is that uh, intermittent supply of important products. So we do need to ensure that we still have uh, th those essential life-saving medicines, and, and some of those are not just for emergency acute care, but also things like um, HIV medicines, uh, tuberculosis medicines, things for um, high blood pressure, all of these um our, our struggle to get. I wanted to touch on, you know, you've mentioned what's being provided that isn't particularly useful, ventilators, nearly expired, paracetamol, etc. What is in short supply that we should be sending and which countries are actually doing the best job of providing useful resources? So we see that um, recently there has been a large consignment um, from Germany, but also there have been donor partners. So the EU has um, been very active in, in supplying funds that then go into um, partner organizations who are able to, to purchase uh, these essential medicines for chronic diseases. So um, 
and as I said, the, the, some of the products that are needed are, of course, for uh, acute care. So we're looking at blood products, infusion products, antibiotics, uh, IV antibiotics. Um, these are all things that uh, are s- specialized prescription-only medicines that uh, hospitals need. Um, and then also what, what we have seen is that uh, in order to reach people faster, uh, because they may be uh, traumatized from attack, they may be too weak to travel. Uh, the WHO has also had um, mobile-type uh, emergency care where they come to on-site to people to assist them. So certainly expanding that program, which, is, which has been um, successful and has also really, I think, worked well in the sense that it's um, improvised with the uh, very strong civil society roots uh, and, and trusting local people more. And I think that's been one of the, the weaknesses of some of the bigger organizations is that uh, they haven't necessarily, they have their own protocols. Um, there's also risk assessment and they're not always able to send their people into the most dangerous areas. But they, that means that they do then need to trust the local people more to help deliver these solutions. So is that a a sort of blocking point, you would say, is that there's not enough trust between the big organisations and the local people and they only want to rely on their own staff to deliver and administer medication? Well, it's certainly slower. Uh, And so in that sense, they're not as agile as some of these um, uh, volunteer groups. Uh, Of course, we always do need a structure of governance and transparency. um, And there are reasons why, uh, and some of them are diplomatic, that they operate in the way that they do. Um, And there really is a place for all different types of organizations to to help and play a role. Uh, But I think we do need to be empowering more of these um, agile civil society groups to to deliver the care that's needed because they can get there faster. They know the lay of the land um, and they're willing to take the risks that, um, you know, other employers may not permit for their workers. So I I think there is definitely an opportunity for that synergy to become closer um, and to not just uh, really say, take it or leave it. This is how uh, our, what our protocol is. So I think there is a great opportunity to, to grow um, partnerships and, and how we deliver that with uh, people on the ground who are doing, um, they're the unsung heroes. They're not getting the credit for the work that they're doing. And that sort of feeds on nicely to my next question, which is whether you would like to name some of those organizations. And if you have any information on it, how we, the listeners and people who are observing this war from afar and seeing the real devastating human impact of it can help those organizations. Uh, certainly. So we've the, the Pharmacist Defense Association in particular has been working very closely um, with uh, Caritas, has been working with um, uh, Pharmacists Without Borders as well. Um, and I do also have to give credit to, 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 the, to the large organizations like USAID, um, who, who really have uh, supported uh, by all, delivering um, e- essential products as well. So uh, while, of course, there are always 
some hiccups <laughs> and uh, points to learn from. Um, these have been major organizations. Um, and I think the real message here is to ensure that that support is continued. What I think perhaps the public um, who has been very eager to help, and I have been so personally moved and touched to see just the extent of how much people care um, and and just the various types of fundraising and things happening at all different levels, local levels, uh, national levels, um, and, and then we – you know, really globally as well. Uh, but one of the things that we saw from uh, the work with the PDA is that when people sent boxes of products, um, again, not really considering what is needed in the area, um, and, and, you know, they contained clothes and nappies and things like this. And so many people um, over the Christmas period and very early in the war um, got together and they sent these parcels. But unfortunately, what they may not realize is that they never crossed into um, over the Polish border. There's just too many of them. They didn't have the capacity to go through it all. Um, it really just got buried uh, and, and put in the dump because it's attracting rodents. And um, I think that Again, there is a strong will to help, and, and we need to keep that up. But we also want to make sure that we're not creating um, extra work and disposal of things that can't be used or can't go through medicines or specialized products. Uh, you, you can't pop them in cellophane and, and ship it over. We need to be able to do it through the proper channels because of the risks that are involved. And again, this is really where the strengths shine through of the uh, really the logistical and, and, and medical expertise that, that uh, pharmacists are able to contribute. So through the network of charities um, that the PDA has worked with uh, across Europe, over 2.5 million pounds of funds have been raised for, specifically for these types of medical supplies. Um, so I would urge the public that the next time that um, you're volunteering or you want to do something positive, if, if you're a listener of this podcast, next time, instead of sending a box, um, look at some of the smaller charities, um, see if what they're able to do. I know that medicines is one angle that absolutely uh, we need over a long period of time. This isn't just going to be through through the fighting. We're talking about into the rebuilding of Ukraine stage as well is going to be needed. I wanted to touch upon the adaptability and resilience of healthcare workers in Ukraine. How are the hospitals and doctors impacted by the energy blackouts, and how are they yes, well, dealing I mean, they with have it to improvise. and changing how they treat uh, patients? And, and they're they're doing so much with so little. So so again, uh, very impressive because a lot of staff may have also left, so they have smaller teams to work with. Uh, and those that are there are uh, relying on technology to be able to assist them when, you know, we've already mentioned uh, there's all sorts of issues happening from from the fact that, you know, how do we get to the people that are immediately injured in like acute emergencies? And, and it's been amazing to see um, basically these mobile clinics that, that rush to the scene of the um, accidents and be able to support people on site uh, if, if they may be too frail to take to hospital immediately um, and, and give that initial care. Uh, we see that also, again, this is another reason why generators are so important. With the tax on power grids, we need to ensure that um, that the electricity maintains, but people are still continuing um, through the dark. They're, they're, they're using whatever resources they have to ensure that they're able to save lives. Um, so again, it, it's not. Um, it's something that's constantly changing, and it's something that we see. There, Ukrainians have done extraordinarily well uh, to be able to adapt to really such horrific circumstances.
Moving on to the sufferers of sort of long-term health conditions, for example, HIV, AIDS in Ukraine, um, they might have had it before the war or sort of any long-term health conditions. How has their care been impacted by the invasion? Well, at the beginning of the invasion, it was hard to get um, the the medicines across, but that's now since been stabilized. Um, There are about uh, more than 30 medical institutions that were providing specialized HIV care um, had to stop their operations um, because of occupation or, or just the fact that the building they were in were completely destroyed and logistic chains were broken. Um, and, and really pre-war, Ukraine was re- making good progress uh, with treating HIV, um, with effective use of the um, antiretroviral meds, that, uh, which, again, we were getting to a much better place. It's interesting because uh, the HIV treatment regimen in Ukraine differ- differs from those used in the EU. Um, and it inc- so it includes uh, just other types of drugs, but they aren't licensed in EU countries. So uh, there was some concern about, in Poland particularly, about people continuing to adhere to treatment. Um, but they changed the law and uh, so that these medicines could be licensed. So that that's another uh, way to, again, uh, that Poland was able to assist. But on the flip side, where they did very good work on that, um, it has been very difficult for women who have fled the conflict um, in Poland because of the more conservative policies to be able to access uh, reproductive care. Um, so not just about we're not just talking about anti-abortion tablets, which um, again are, are restricted in Poland, but uh, even even just contraception. And so, on one hand, there has been you know huge benefits, but there are also some medical challenges as well. So just for clarification, because I, I myself am not clear either, what's the law on contraception in Ukraine, and how does that differ to Poland? Uh, so uh, you can get um, the emergency hormonal contraception um, more easily, more readily in Ukraine. Um, and in recent times, uh, it's become more difficult uh, and, and really even in severe instances of um, the much like actually in the U.S., <laughs> access to abortion medication has become much more problematic. As for maternity units and um, resources in Ukraine, how have they been impacted? And I mean, I'm just imagining, for example, being in a blackout and being in labour or having any kind of complication must be so incredibly frightful, especially because it's such an unpredictable and stressful time anyway. What's the situation like there now in maternity units? And well, we see that... Uh, again, it really varies in, in <laughs> what part of the country you're in and if it happens to be the site of an attack because babies, so many babies in Ukraine during this year have been born in a bomb shelter. Um, and <laughs> that in itself is is uh, very challenging. Um, people have, again, had to, in power outages, deliver anyways uh, without um, electricity. So there have been huge obstacles towards what we would consider good quality uh, maternal care. Uh, And 
unfortunately, this this does have uh, lasting implications, particularly earlier in pregnancies. We see that um, stresses that the mother uh, feels um, leaves it an effect on the child as well. So very high stress from constant um, air raids, um, attacks, fear, adrenaline, all of these issues can later mean, and these studies have been done um, previously as well in um, Holland uh, and looking at in previous wars where uh, mothers who were in stressful uh, conditions who didn't have access to food, they did a long cohort study to follow the children and they saw a direct uh, impact on the health of of the child where they were much more likely to develop um, diabetes and heart conditions earlier than their peers in this cohort study, um, uh, you know, done in the the, the 40s. So um, we we have this scientific evidence to show that, you know, if you are um, not even delivering is one aspect, but going through a pregnancy, living in a war zone without um, necessarily access to consistent water, food, uh, electricity, care, and in high states of fear, that's obviously going to impact the health of the child and the health of the, the future nation. Yeah, thank you. It's so interesting to think about how this invasion will impact so many generations to come. Is there anything else that we haven't discussed already that you would like to talk about? Uh, I think I would just emphasize again that today is a Ukrainian Christmas Eve. Um, Some may not be observing it uh, and moving towards uh, the the Western calendar. But um, in the spirit of giving that if there are people that want to continue to to help and make a difference, um, that funds for these uh, Four medicines are one of the most impactful ways to be able to support and that you could do that by going to medicines2ukraine.com in any country. Um, It'll be recognized. I know we've got a lot of listeners from all over the world, including Canada, where we have uh, 1.36 million Ukrainian Canadians. So we really um, appreciate any support that um, people can offer at this time. Just picking up on what you were saying there about Canada, we have a lot of listeners in Canada. And I think it'd be interesting because it's not a country we've talked about at length, actually, on the podcast. Just wanted to get a general sense from you what the reaction was in Canada. You've already talked there about the the, the size of the Ukrainian population diaspora there. But what generally was the reaction in Canada? And what, what are the particular concerns that maybe are unique to that country when looking at this conflict? Uh, well, we have something called the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, the UCC, which is the voice for the diaspora. And they have uh, really put a lot of pressure on the Canadian government to swing into action um, uh, t- to enhance sanctions, which are also an important part of um, how we fight this war, uh, not just on the battlefield, but uh, also uh, who we do business with and, and how. Um, and... Paul Hrod, who was the past president of the UCC and is now the Ukrainian-Canadian World Congress um, president, um, has has really been um, influential in um, also not just for asking support from uh, other organizations and countries uh, on the military front, uh, but supporting those that come into our into Canada. So um, Canada has also been a popular place for uh, Ukrainian refugees to to come and resettle, uh, specifically because of the large Ukrainian Canadian community. Um, And so they've been very involved in terms of 
integration within schools, helping them to set up um, for job interviews, really practical. So we, we look at sort of the high-level lobbying where we, we're represented through the UCC, right down to the, the very individual, bringing in people to their family. Um, and of course, many people in the UK and Europe also uh, took in uh, Ukrainians, but it, it has been to a greater extent uh, in Canada. And our Deputy Prime Minister and, and Finance Minister, Christian Freeland, also has Ukrainian heritage and was sanctioned uh, by Russia already in 2014. So we're very lucky to have, um, you know, very informed and active leadership uh, w- within the Canadian government itself. That's really interesting. And just in terms of coming back to, to Ukraine itself, it's interesting what you were saying about some of the challenges of procurement. And... Just wondering whether you go into a little bit more detail about some of the difficulties with perhaps procuring, procuring certain medical supplies. And what I'm what I'm particularly getting at here is we obviously have had years of, of, of lockdowns as a consequence of COVID. And as, as a part of that, the challenges of international procurement, the competition between different countries in order to purchase certain medical supplies over others issues around sort of corruption and making sure that money doesn't go wasted. Just interested in your general reflections, are there any lessons that were learned from COVID or are some of those challenges have they carried over with relation to Ukraine? Well, I think it's difficult to apply some of the lessons learned from COVID because uh, w- one of the, the major lessons, especially that low and uh, middle income countries learned, is that they need to have their own uh, manufacturing and suppliers uh, within their regions and that if they don't, um, they're going to be last in line and totally dependent on donations. Um, and I think that's one of the things that Ukraine will have to be working towards uh, over a, a long period of time is to ensure that they can be uh, self-sufficient when it comes to defending their territory. And that will be a, you know, a, a decades-long uh, project. But with the, the medicine supply itself, uh, highly globalized. So I think when we look at uh, where the pressures or the bottlenecks exist, it becomes difficult because, of course, countries are going to ensure that they have their own stockpiles first uh, before they send. But I think there is also, uh, to some extent, limitations to which the donation model uh, is effective. So, for instance, um, some companies like Novo Nordisk, they have foundations, they produce diabetes medication, and so they will send uh, a, a lot of, of their medication, like a confinement of that. But then you're you're really at whims of, of what is available. So I think that the lessons from COVID were around manufacturing independence. Now, certainly in the region outside of Ukraine, right now, w- building up a pharmaceutical industry in Ukraine would not be wise, uh, given the level of destruction that's happening. Uh, but there is there is a level of dependency that's difficult to navigate around uh, because it is really through a donation scheme system. Thank you. Uh, just one more from me, if I may, which is... Yeah. Um, we, of course, every country in the world and particularly in Europe has their own long-term health issues. Plenty in Britain, plenty in France, plenty in Germany. They're all slightly different because of cultural factors and, of course, their own divergent histories. Just wonder that before the war, what was the state of Ukraine's healthcare? What were the long-term challenges in their in that country that might differ from certain other ones? And then thinking forward, what do you think that after the war, the long-term health impact may be and the challenges that Ukraine will face? 
Uh, well, certainly the levels of HIV are highest uh, in Ukraine and in all of Europe. So the, the, reducing that burden um, continues. To, while it was improving, um, it still had uh, was one of the top priorities within the region, along with tuberculosis, which is, of course, an infectious disease um, and quite serious and, and um, requires some complex uh, medical uh treatment. You're taking several tablets uh, a day. Uh, so we have some infectious disease uh, issues as well as um, so oncology and cancer care, palliative care, all of these things, again, um, needed improvement. And since the war, really, there is n- palliative care almost altogether has dropped off. And uh, this is this is a major problem. And, and transporting uh, oncology patients and and continuing their treatment is so critical as well. And that has been one of the biggest challenges. So I think we're going to see, um, again, an impact of COVID itself. Uh, This has been missed cases, missed uh, people aren't coming to their appointments. So um, there are 100 million uh, people in Europe who have not um, had their screening for cancer done. So we're moving outside of Ukraine, but including it, which translates to about one million people who have cancer, but uh, will have not been diagnosed yet as a result of that. Um, And this is a huge problem. The Lancet just published a report about um, oncology and cancer care. And interestingly, Ukraine was one of the countries where we had the most clinical trials in oncology. So we're losing a huge amount of research and knowledge stemming out of Ukraine because the studies and the trials were based there. And as a result, that impacts our our um, policies and understanding of the diseases going forward. So in the report itself, it highlights the damage done, uh, not just because, of course, uh, within the Ukrainian population, cancer care has been disrupted and there'll be many more cancer deaths. But as Europe, it affects all of us because it's been one of the research hotspots for cancer. Thank you for that, Oksana. Before we wrap up this afternoon's episode, uh, Francis, are there any more updates for us? Well, just a couple that I wanted to touch on. We've talked a little bit about how Canada is reacting to the war in Ukraine as part of this broader conversation about how the world is reacting, even when they've seem on the surface quite geographically removed. And it just brought to mind that there was quite an interesting story that I read this morning about how the Japanese prime minister has said that he's told Vladimir Zelensky in a phone call that he's considering his invitation to visit Kyiv, depending on the circumstances. And whilst nothing's been decided, clearly Tokyo's support for Ukraine since the war began has been very strong. They strongly condemned Russia's aggression. And indeed, I believe sincerely that they are concerned on, on a moral basis, but they are also, of course, concerned because of issues in the Pacific around Taiwan and instability there from China. So I just wanted to touch on that because it shows again of how the war in Ukraine has geographical, political ramifications, ripples all around the world that we are still only really just coming to terms with, I think. And of course, some of the questions that we've been posing now for several days are around how things could potentially 
escalate in the long term unless certain things are done. And I think it's important that we are always thinking about this much more widely than just what is going on in Europe, because it does have big, big ramifications abroad as well. Um, and just one other thing in this sort of diplomatic space that I just, again, I think it's important that when we see stories on this, we touch on it, is that the Belarusian president, Alexander Yushchenko, visited a military base where Russian troops are stationed. And that's according to the defense ministry. And uh, apparently this is an unnamed representative from the Russian army discussed the two countries joint military drills, which, of course, we've spoken about. And I just think we should continue to keep an eye on this because, of course, if, as we understand, is being uh, talked about at quite high levels, there is a chance of there being some kind of renewed offensive on Kiev. And Belarus would be integral to that. Either it would be integral in the sense that, like in the first uh, main invasion that happened in February, that Belarus would be one of the key territories that they would be launched from. But if they don't proceed and they're not used, then also that would be also relevant. But as things are going on at the moment, it does seem that Belarus is still keen to to be working more closely with Putin than, than perhaps one might um, hope at this st- at this scale of the war. So again, I just wanted to draw attention to that because if, as we fear, there were to be some sort of major um, offensive from the Russians in, in the coming months, then I think Belarus are going to have a role in that. So any news there that involves Lukashenko working more closely with Putin, being involved with drills, those kind of conversations, I think it's worth it's, it's worth us touching on. So I just wanted to touch on that before we ended today. Thank you, Francis. And now we are coming to the end of our time this afternoon. So I'd like to come to our final thoughts. Oksana, what are the main things you would like to leave our listeners with this afternoon? Well, I think the fact that so many uh, people in Ukraine and really generations will be traumatised uh, by by this war and, and that's going to be one of the greatest mental health burdens that will not just be limited I think to Ukraine um, I think Francis was was entirely correct to highlight the global implications and that that also uh, matters for health and not just infectious diseases but but in other ways as well um, because a, a stronger Europe is really brings uh, the, the whole continent uh, up. Uh, and again, just to really ask our listeners to consider how they might be able to to play a role and what each of us as individuals can do. So um, my final ask is uh, for everyone just to, to even have a look at medicines2ukraine.com. Thank you for that. And over to you, Francis, for your final thoughts. Well, thank you. And of course, in the same vein uh, that Oksana was talking about, I think it's important that we also think about the, 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 the or continue to return, should I say, to the issue of, of war crimes that have been perpetrated by, by Russians on ordinary civilians. Obviously, it's something that we've touched on the podcast a lot. And whenever there's news in this space, I think it's, again, important to draw attention to that. And in that sense, there's been uh, some you know, troubling, further troubling remarks from the head of the Wagner Group in the last 24 hours. The first batch of Russian convicts that were sent to fight on the front lines have, we understand, been told not to drink too much or rape anyone after being returned as free men in exchange for their services. I mean, just the very fact that this is even a, a topic of conversation that can be made publicly, I find absolutely extraordinary in the modern age, frankly. Um, but I think it also does speak to the fact that it's clearly being acknowledged that this is going on at the highest levels. Um, otherwise, one wouldn't talk about it in this way. 
but also it's it, the, the manner in which it seems to be being talked about seems pretty casual to me. I mean, the fact that you're putting that in the same sentence as not drinking too much is extremely troubling and I think does talk to an ingrained culture, certainly within the Wagner group and in mercenary forces, that is operating on a absolutely different um, uh, moral level, frankly, than, than would, uh, would be acceptable in conventional forces. Although, of course, at the same time, we've seen similar atrocities committed by the Russian army. And I return again to a point made very eloquently for us in our paper by Robert Toombs, which is that one of the most troubling things this war has done has shown that previously perceived things that were belonged only in the past, you know, the kind of atrocities that were committed by the Red Army, for instance, in uh, Berlin and in Eastern Europe uh, at the end of the Second World War, were believed to be consequences of the unique vicious circumstances of the Second World War, which were, of course, um, absolutely barbaric on the Eastern Front. But most troublingly of all is that it seems there's actually a much more deeper ingrained cultural issue within uh, certain mercenary forces and within the Russian army that enables this kind of behaviour that was not something that was facilitated by the uh, actions of, of, of others, but rather it's something, it's a sort of a culture, a lack of training, a lack of sensitivity, all of these things that is per perpetrating this kind of behaviour and facilitating it and enabling it. And until that is tackled, uh, in, in the long term, then I fear that this is not going to be something that we're going to see change, which is why, of course, it is so vital and so important that the international community remains committed to focusing on the issue of war crimes and bringing those who have done these things to justice, not only in on a small scale, but actually something that is seen internationally. And we are talking, I think, in terms of trials at The Hague, and we are talking in terms of um, something that people can point to, just like we do with Nuremberg, as something that showed that actually certain behaviour has to is not only tolerated by the international community, but needs to be seen as a cultural moment, a cultural reckoning that everybody remembers for generations to come. Because the danger is, is if that does not happen, that uh, this kind of behaviour, I fear, will just be um, enabled uh, in the long term. So just, uh, again, whenever a story like this rears its head, I always think it's important to draw attention to it, even if it may sometimes seem quite small in compared to the grand scheme of things. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols.